This is Erased. I'm Colette Bauer-Zinn. And this is Lisa Johnson. Two Black moms bonded by bluntness, tenacity, and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support. Every Thursday, we're exploring where the intersections of education, race, and culture collide, dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive, despite being marginalized. Welcome to Erase Podcast. I am your co-host, Colette Bauer-Zinn, sitting right next to Lisa Johnson. We promised you an exciting topic this week with some phenomenal guests, and here we are to discuss, is it worth it? The true cost of sending our kids of color to independent schools. So the conversation, I need to frame the conversation we're going to have today, and you will have to bear with me because it is based in research, which means that I will be talking to you about some research throughout this conversation. So we were looking at the success of African-American students, SAAS, in independent schools, which was a collaborative research project on how Black students navigate the independent school environment. And coming out of that study, there's some other studies on deck, and here's the conclusion. The composition for Black youth in independent schools is racially dissonant. Demographically speaking, the population does not reflect the multiracial reality of our nation as a whole, whereby as of 2019, only 6.8% of enrolled independent school students were African-American and 26.5% are other students of color. Additionally, the staff and faculty at independent schools are overwhelmingly white, whereby only 26% of people of color are employed on average. So the majority of students sampled reference most often the quality of education and availability of resources as the most positive aspect of their experience in independent schools. Following with the availability of social and cultural opportunities, college prep and teacher care. Simultaneously, however, students generally highlighted that the school fit wasn't as positive due to a lack of connection to the school community, the socialization process and prevalent racism. Let's talk about it. So a loaded topic. And we have some powerhouses here to join us today. Ravita Bowers, who's formerly retired head of school for 44 years. She was there at the Center of Early Education in West Hollywood, California. She has recently come out of retirement to be the interim head of the center and is current national chair of the Common Sense Media Board of Directors. Also joining us is Luther. Wait, wait, I got to pause you before we get to Luther because you missed... The crown jewel of (laughs) Ravita's accomplishments, and that is giving birth to me. Absolutely. Hi, Mom. (laughs) We also have Lutheran Williams, head of school at New Road School in Santa Monica, California. Lutheran has over 25 years of experience as an administrator and English teacher in independent schools in New York, Boston, and Los Angeles. Before we jump into our topic of conversation, we always like to kick things off asking our guests. I will start with you, Miss Ravita. When was the last time you felt erased, diminished, or invisible because of your race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, any of the above? Last what week, happened? do tell. I was in a store waiting to be helped and standing next to someone else who had walked up after oh, I walked up to no the counter. Oh, going. Goodness. Yes, we all do. And the person turned and asked the person who had just gotten to the counter whether she could help her. And luckily, that person was gracious enough to say, excuse me, 
she was here before I was. Excellent. But horrific, but excellent. <laughs> Lutherne, <laughs> when was the last time you felt erased? It's, it's hard to just uh, identify a moment since it seems to be in the air I breathe. Um, but I will uh, point out what stands out the most to me. And it was actually several months ago in a professional meeting. And I was one of the only African-Americans in this meeting of people from various schools. And um, I raised, uh, you know, I raised an issue that about race that really I think people weren't ready to hear. And often in those cases, I either have to sort of feel like I need to silence myself or to prepare for the the consequences of speaking my mind. Interesting. Interesting. You know, those, these moments, I love that we asked this question because it also, you know, highlights that we all experience this issue. And yet it also is always just a little bit of a, you know, painful reality. So I'm going to take you back into the research really quickly to get to our first question. So first and foremost, the experience of racism is a reality that has severe social, economic, psychological, and physiological implications. Generally speaking, independent schools perpetuate institutional systems of whiteness and power in that the general demographic is majority white. The values and behavioral norms reinforce whiteness as the normative power structure and the prevalence of the Quote, myth of sameness helps individuals who lack the vocabulary and knowledge of systematic racism to distance themselves and therefore their students from developing their own strategies for engaging within diversity and addressing racist experience. How do schools move away from institutionalizing whiteness, especially if they don't recognize that they're even doing it? Nuthern, go for it. (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, well, I think that you, a school really can't, um, it can't sort of move forward in its process toward um, really dismantling issues of institutionalized racism until there is actually an awareness. And I think that that usually involves really developing an analytic framework as well as the vocabulary to begin able to, to begin to see what to them has largely remained invisible. So I think that a first step always has to be acknowledging that there actually is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, that problem just continues. And I think that's why when we see what's black at and, mm-hmm. you know, the expression of it, you know, it's interesting because I went to independent school many, 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 many years ago. And what I can say is that largely the issues have remained the mm-hmm. same. And I, what I was hearing in Blackout were largely the same kinds That's of issues. That's exactly because what I said when we discussed this in our first episode, that the discouraging part is I could literally, and, and I actually loved the school that I went to and had a great experience, but I can also at the same time, and we're going to get to this dissonance as well, uh, duality, I should say, not dissonance, duality. The generational. The generational piece of like, I could go on Instagram today and it's literally the same quotes that myself and my peers were saying about negative experiences had in independent schools. But see, and I don't even know if it's, to me, it's obvious there's a problem and it's definitely, you know, definitely part of the process to acknowledge it, but it's the degree to which they're acknowledging 
or not acknowledging the depth of the issue that I think is really the piece that's just not, I don't know, it's not happening everywhere. So you guys are both heads of school, schools who have acknowledged what's going on. So what's your advice for school leadership to step in to the acknowledgement? Well, let me start because I think the age of the children in the school has a lot to do with how we approach this work. Remember that I'm in a preschool through sixth grade. So when when parents are coming to look at my school, some of their children aren't walking and talking yet. And so it's much easier to have the conversations about coming into an environment as children are beginning to gain greater awareness of the world around them and the children around them. And of course, parents of young children will often say, well, you know, my child is colorblind. And I always come back with, no children are colorblind unless they can't see at all. Because one of the first things that children begin to discriminate around are Mm -hmm. colors. They're very clear about colors. And whether that's Crayolas in a box, you know, blocks on a shelf or people in a classroom. And so the more diverse the school is, the more hungry people are for these conversations. But that's a long journey for many schools to undertake and sometimes a really steep hill to climb. Lutheran, speak on it. Well, I think I'll just sort of pick up on where Rubita left off with journey. And I think it is seeing the process of institutional change as a journey. And that the head of school and the board, I think, really need to think about what is their institutional commitment look like on all levels of the institution? And how have they made themselves really a home for these students and families? So they're not just perpetual visitors. Because I think that what happens, and I think about what Du Bois said when he was at Harvard, when he said, I was at Harvard, but I was not Mm. of Harvard. And I think that that remains true in many of these independent schools where the students are perpetual visitors and the families are perpetual visitors. And what do the schools have to do to change, to become multicultural institutions that embrace all children where they can thrive and where they don't have to suffer in order to get an academically excellent education. So is it worth it? Let's just say I'm a new parent and I am grappling right now with whether or not this makes sense, given all this research. You know, I think this is the struggle that a lot of parents have. You know, do I do this knowing that they're going to be in a situation where they're, you know. And mom, I'm going to make this one personal for you. You you sent sent, uh, me to private school and my brother to parochial school, ultimately, for for high school. Is it worth it? Absolutely. And I agree with you. Yes, obviously. It's kind of rhetorical of us, but... 100%. (laughs) But but tell us why. Tell us what... Well, you know what? I think we have to look at the issue of school choice. And this is not a discussion about public versus private or independent or parochial or boarding school or anything else. It's about every family coming to grips with what the choices and alternatives are 
that are both available to them and accessible. And whether in any school is going to require sacrifices, the school at the end of your block that you can walk to and that your children can walk to. Because schools demand certain levels of participation, certain levels of involvement, of volunteerism, of sharing resources. But independent schools particularly emphasize involvement of families as partners in the education of their children. So for me as a parent, it was always worth it because I was in a work environment where I had left one system and saw the incredible opportunities and benefits in another one. And I, and leadership matters in this. And I was fortunate enough to work for a board in a school that had been founded by Jews leaving uh, Nazi Germany and Austria and England at the beginning of World War II to come to Los Angeles and eventually start a school. So there was a mindset in their minds about how incredibly important cultural identity, racial identity, religious identity, and diversity and discrimination were in the founding of the school. So when you have a board that has a mindset that they want an inclusive environment because of their own personal experience, you're way ahead of the game because usually it's the educational administrative side or the parent side that's pushing for diversity, inclusion, and equity. So for me to walk into an institution and four years later be asked to lead that institution that was not diverse at all and have the mandate to diversify it was such an incredible gift. And so immediately saw the benefit of the education for young children, preschool through elementary ages. And Lutheran, so the counter to this, of course, is, and we talked a little bit about this before we went on air, when isn't it worth it? Like, what is the line in the sand? We know a lot of these schools have a lot of work to do. When as a parent do you feel, you know, is it time to stick it out or is it time to like, you know, figure something else out? Well, I'm going to sort of, I'm going to, I'm going to answer the first one and then answer the second one, because the, the first question, you know, I was just thinking about it as, you know, I, as I heard Revita talking and I think about my own parents and why I ended up in private school, which was not necessarily by intention. Um, my parents were both from the South and Louisiana and they went to segregated schools and my mom used to talk about sort of having to read books that were hand-me-down books from the white schools with pages torn out and the books being out of date. And, um, and it was really important for them that we have access to a high-quality education. And That's purposeful. I, <laughs> and when they moved to California and when they lived first in a very working class African-American neighborhood, but realized that on the other side of the valley where my parents moved, it was much more affluent. And it seemed that the schools were um, the kids were achieving at a much higher level. So they moved all five of us there. And then I ended up getting a scholarship for football to a private school. Mm-hmm. And I think that 
my parents always are very clear. You're there for the education. Mm -hmm. I don't care what they say, you know, and I don't care how you feel. Like that was just, they were from the South. <laughs> so that was just not their gig. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> they were like, you're only there to get an education. And I did get the education. And I think about the fact that that education did prepare me for anything I wanted to do in my life. And yes, I did suffer, but I would not trade the education that I got to avoid that suffering. Yeah. When I think it's a problem is I, uh, here's where, how I would answer your question, Lisa, is I don't think kids should have to suffer to the same extent anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that at some point, it really does so much damage to your self-esteem and your sense of your own racial identity and racial pride, especially if your parents are not giving you that outside. And my parents were clearly giving me that outside and they clearly were countering the messages. So that I was I, I, that's that. a really good point that I, I want to speak on for a second. I think that, you know, while I had certain experiences that were less than optimal in, in my private school education, like I said, it was majority joyful and really about the pursuit of the love of learning, which I credit being instilled in me by my mom, who's an educator, and her mom, who's an educator. And so I want for you guys to speak on both what you were just saying, Lutheran, and, and mom having done this. What do you advise parents who are sending their kids of color into independent schools to do to make the experience as palatable as possible and joyful. You know what? Okay. I want to take this for a second because I think you have to think about finding the best fit environment for your child because it's not worth it if you've chosen a school for your reasons and the child is sitting in that school and in that classroom hiding in plain sight trying to be invisible because they don't feel as though they fit in in any way. So if academically it's out of reach or intellectually or emotionally or the sacrifices a family is making to send their child to the school all of a sudden seem punitive within the family, you know, I don't think it's worth it to drive a child two and a half or three hours to get to a school. But for some children, if the experience at the under, other end of that drive is pleasurable, then it's worth it. But I think so many of our children of color are in schools where they're hiding in plain sight. Everybody else can see who they are, but they can't see who they are themselves within the reflection of the school. Amen. They don't see Anybody who looks like them that's an adult or anybody in their class who looks like them. And you know what? God knows somebody has to be first, but schools also need to be intentional about making sure that children of color are not sitting in classrooms by themselves. If you're going to accept one child, take two. It'd be better to take two children at the same grade level than two children in different grade levels who feel a sense of isolation in their classroom. And remember, I'm speaking about younger children, but they 
automatically gravitate toward what they see that is familiar. And so it becomes extraordinarily important for them to be able to see themselves in the environment because certainly other people see them. Luther? Mm. Well, I just, the, when I think about, when I think about sort of this, this issue of the suffering, I, I do think about what Rabita was saying about her school. Um, because when I think about my own school and I think about New Roads, it was founded because the founders largely felt that Brown versus the Board of Education had been a failure and that there wasn't a socioeconomically, racially and culturally integrated school in Los Angeles. So diversity was at the core of its DNA. There is no New Roads without the diversity. And I think that one of the things I keep going back to is, does the school have an institutional commitment to diversity and equity. And to me, that means looking at your students, it means looking at your faculty, it means looking at your board, it means looking at your administration. And our children should not have to continue being the Little Rock Seven. And I keep thinking about that, and I think about Gladwell when he talked about that, you know, and, you know, are we sending them into these schools to integrate them? And I think it's, and I think at least when I go back to it, to me, the question is that no school is perfect and every school is on a journey. And I know Amen. that's true of my own school. But the fact of the matter is, are you willing to be on the journey and to make the progress? And you know what? Schools are not just accepting children. We're accepting family. And I know when I first came to the center, there were very few families of color, very few, a handful. But it was important for them to have a place in the school where they could get together outside of school and really share and embellish the experience they were having in the walls of the school. And so that was the first affinity group that was started, the heritage families. And it was a rich tradition over the years as the school became more diverse, because we moved from 3% students of color to 51% students of color now, from three teachers of color in the beginning, and all three of us were a different racial identity, to 45% of the faculty and staff being people of color now. But as Lutheran said, it is a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. And one of the things that I love that Pedro Naguero, the dean of the Ed School at USC, said the other night at his seminar is that as high school students, adult, young adults are looking back at the experiences they had in their early years and so the question is not how can we fix that? But how can we fix the experience for the children of color that are in our schools today? We can apologize for the experience they had, and we should apologize. But how can we work on not just diversity and not just equity, but on the most important standard of all, which is inclusion in the schools in which these children are enrolled Which today. segues perfectly to my next question. 
um, back to that study, students named feeling simultaneously connected and disconnected to their school. So they encounter people and resources that affirm them within the school while at the same time they confront challenges to their sense of self and community. It's rarely one or the other, often both. And we need to acknowledge the duality. And I ask the question, how do we better address the challenges that force students of color into the space of duality? Well, it's interesting that you that you say that because I think about why it is that I actually became an administrator. And um, I was actually brought to a school in New York City, a very prestigious school. And um, the Black Student Union actually protested to bring me there because they said they couldn't find a qualified African-American teacher in New York. And so they found a 21-year-old African-American man right out of college who was connected to people from the school. But it was a very interesting thing because I remember at that school, there was this beautiful, dark-skinned girl, beautiful and very regal, just innately. And her name was Amatula. And she didn't say a word in my classroom. I mean, she was in my English class. And I remember she used to always walk with her head to the mm -hmm. ground. And I noticed that a lot of the African-American kids there, they were surviving. They weren't thriving. And in some cases, they were getting a second-class education in a world-class institution. And I saw this at several schools in a row. And I said, something has to change. Because what I realized is that these schools have the capacity to be able to develop the full human potential of students. But what happens, I think, with a lot of African-American kids is they're still wearing their mask. And they still have to have that double consciousness as they are in the schools. And so I think, you know, this young woman ended up winning. I left the school, but she ended up winning the creative writing award, and she ended up writing an essay about me, her college mm -hmm. essay. And I think this goes back to what Ravita was saying. It's like, I think the need to diversify the faculty and diversify the administration and diversify the boards. So you shift the conversations that people are having and you have different kinds of people helping to set the agenda for the school for everyone. And you and you also have to make it a safe space where they can take off their masks. Yeah, that sense you of know? belonging. So, and that's what um, Ravita was talking about before, diversifying who they're seeing in the yeah. hallways, being yeah. other students, faculty, staff, and administration. And one that gets often overlooked and is a point of contention in some of our local independent schools currently, the curriculum. It's hard to stay engaged if you're not yeah. reflected in your curriculum. And, and what we were discussing in episode prior is that we are currently watching schools having to combat community members who are telling them that it's anti-white when they try to diversify curriculum so as to better reflect their student populations. Well, what's really interesting and what sticks out to me is I remember one of uh, the head of New Roads talks about this all the time. He said when they first founded the school, they had, you know, a really famous founder and they, you know, had a head of school who was very deeply connected in Los Angeles. And they thought it would be so easy for them to get students from other West Side mm -hmm. schools initially. But he said he tried to convince this one parent um, to come to New Roads and 
she basically said, why would I send my children to school with people I'm trying to keep them away from? And I, I think that how this kind of goes back is these underlying assumptions and beliefs, because I think a lot of the pushback is sort of, if you have a more inclusive curriculum, then you are diminishing the academic quality of the mm-hmm. schools. You are diminishing the academic excellence of the schools, that there seems to be implicit and inverse correlation between academic excellence and diversity. And I've always sort of said, and it's one of the reasons I'm so prideful about New Roads, is no, in fact, they're mutually inclusive and inextricably linked. Yeah. You know, And I think that until we get at the heart of this, assumptions underlie some of these schools, we can't have the real conversation. So how do we help bring that conversation forward? Or do you think that's just going to happen because of the world and everything that's going on? Or the students who, you know, are not backing down? Well, let me say something. I think that doesn't recognize its obligation to not only provide professional development for faculty, but professional development for parents. Yes. Parent education. Parent education that names it, that speaks of it, and to be clear about what a family is joining when they join an independent school, to speak out loud when these families come into our school about our mission, our purpose, our values, our philosophy of education, our commitment to diversity. Because if you don't want to be there, then don't accept the invitation to come. But I think that statement makes the assumption that the people in power positions in schools are truly committed to their missions, et cetera. I I think it became very fashionable in the early 2000s to name diversity as part of your mission statement, get the word slid in there. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessitate that the people who then have to execute that mission are committed. Or that parent education will be what it should be or development. (laughs) Well, it's it's like, but to me, it's sort of, if you, do you look at sort of, I want to always ask the question and we go into certain institutions or places when you look at me, do you see less? Yeah. When you look at people who produce the, you know, the writing that look like me, do you think it's less? Do you, you know, I think that there's, I think we need to get to the heart of it. And that requires you know? honesty, which I'm <laughs> saying again. So how do we get to the heart of it? That's the question. I think that you were asking me, Lisa, and I feel I finally feel like I'm ready to really give you a real answer to the question about is it when yeah. is it worth it? And for me, when it's worth it is when people are willing to lean into the messiness mm-hmm. of these conversations, that even if they're not necessarily getting them right, but they're having the conversations yeah. that they have brought these assumptions to the fore. Yeah. Because I think it goes back to what Colette was saying, like, if you don't name it, you can't tame it. Well, and, and so from, <laughs> yeah. from both of you, what, what's your advice to get those who aren't willing to name it, to name it? To name it. And or, also, or admit that they're not willing to name it. Or also to get used to and comfortable with the messiness. Because I think a lot of times the minute something happens and school, schools go into, let's fix it, let's, let's address it, let's figure it out. When, 
some of it, to your point, it's just messy and it's just uncomfortable. And we have to be okay living in that space while we figure it out. We can't make this go away overnight. How do we help, you know, everyone get okay with that even? Well, I I think we all need to look for people who are like-minded and they're there. I mean, you know what? I've been a Los Angeles school head. This is my 41st year, my 46th year in independent schools. And I came out of retirement back to a school that was diverse when I left and is even more diverse now. And that's a credit to the board and the administration for continuing on the path and the strategic vision that has been an important part of the mission and the values of the school. But there are other school heads and other schools in Los Angeles in different places on their journey, but like-minded educators. And that's why schools that are in different places on the journey need to find ways to collaborate, to convene, to invite, to assemble, uh, to share resources, and to have conversations across leadership circles, Mm -hmm. board members talking to board members in other schools, and heads talking to heads in other schools. And that's why I take the responsibility of my school to be a convener so seriously. Because if they can come into a community that's willing to have these hard conversations and listen as others have those conversations, and if we can model, we know that others will follow and will have the courage to take those steps because they see it working somewhere else. And that's critically important. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I sort of, there was a group of heads that I meet with and it's a group of like-minded folks. And and I think we have sort of taken it upon ourselves to become, uh, to build our capacity as, you know, anti-racist heads of school in trying to figure out sort of how we do this work. And it's a multiracial group. And we started a few years ago. And I think that, one of the things that I think we need to realize is that just like with learning, you have to find a desirable level of challenge for people. And you have to, there's only a certain level of anxiety and stress that you can put into a process for optimal growth. And so I think that schools have to approach their work very strategically and figuring out what is the next step on the journey for my institution. And I think the key really is what Ravita said, and I would love to see CIS do this, is what is the strategic vision? I think this work has to be strategic. And that is exactly why private school access (laughs) is building in a diversity, (laughs) equity, and inclusion accreditation opportunity for our partner schools so that we can help them reflect, self-reflect, and see how they are operating and put in to a strategic plan goals for better attaining and sustaining diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes. And I think that's why, you know, Ravita's work has sort of gone beyond her headship because she built the infrastructure for that work. She worked with the board to create a strategic plan for that work. And so, 
to me, I'm trying to do the same thing as a head of school, which is to really allow the work to far to go far beyond me. It should not be about me and it should not be about any individual board. So we're going to ask if you have any parting words as we wrap up our conversation about, is it worth it, mom? (laughs) I would say it's absolutely worth it uh, because I think the sacrifices that families make to send their children to independent schools today is both an opportunity, but it's also an investment. But it's got to be the right school. It's got to be the right match. It's got to be a place where they feel as though the values of their home are aligned as much as possible with the values of the school. That they see themselves having a role in the school as parents and a role in the school for their children as well that they believe the school is worth investing in with their time, with their personal resources, with their energy, with their voice. And I think to find, I think every parent should talk to alumni from a school and ask about their experience. And if what you're hearing sounds good, then pursue or explore the school. But I think as schools, we have a real obligation to make it easier for parents to feel included and families to feel included as well. With systems and protocols and procedures and sometimes resources to make all of the school available to them in the same way it is available to other children in the school. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to give a plug to private school Axis Colette and <laughs> also to the private school village, Lisa, because I will say that I have more optimism now um, for independent schools, especially here in L.A., than I've heard had anywhere else. And in part, it's because of the work that the two of you are striving to, to, to do, which is to really sort of help schools get the tools that they need and to look at this work more strategically and to see that their their responsibility after taking these children and making sure that they have an environment in which they thrive and also to provide outside a way of fostering a positive sense of their racial identity and their well-being until schools can get there. I have any of those things. And so the fact that you guys are here and you're doing this work, I think, is a ray of hope. Oh, Thank you. shucks. So that's <laughs> privateschoolvillage.org. Yes. Privateschoolaxis.org. Check you. out our programs <laughs> and support. But really, it is coming out of a passion for education, for our children, and the desire to do differently. And cliche as it sounds, it takes a village. So none of this is happening in isolation. Absolutely. So, well, we thank you both for yes. taking your time and energy and wealth of knowledge to join us today. Mom, we will forgive the fact that your email kept <laughs> dinging the entire time. I love you it. Were having a conversation. Love, you mean it. <laughs> She's multitasking. Don't blame her. You try getting 400 emails. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Wasn't I just complaining about yep. email? 
<laughs> Amen. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, remember, everyone, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. You can find us at erasedpodcast.com. That's erased with a C. Be sure to subscribe as well. And join us next Thursday. We're going to have another riveting and informative conversation. Bye. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>